Welcome to the City View Community Church Podcast. Whether you're here for our weekly sermons, leadership chats, or conversations about life, we are stoked that you are here. If you want to know more of our story or want to partner with us, head over to cityviewcc.com. Our prayer today is that you walk away challenged, encouraged, and more passionate about discovering your purpose by knowing God, loving people, and living on mission. Let's jump right in. Well, hey, who passed it? Danny here. We are in part two of our series called Summer Love, and we're doing this deep dive into love and why it's so important in our relationships, but also in how we discover our purpose, how we live on mission. Love is this foundational element of everything that we do. And so last week we, we kicked it off and we talked about how God's love is it's not just something he does, it's who he is. And because it's a part of his DNA and we're created in his image, it's part of our DNA as well. That as we accept his love, we then become givers of his love. But there's an enemy of that love as well, and it's fear. We talked about how fear's greatest job is to create suspicion, is to cause us to pause. And so we see this fear in believing that God's love is is true, that it, it feels too good to be true. And so many times we don't go all the way in and we hesitate to trust his plans for our lives because fear plays this massive role. So love is this major deal for us, but, but what does that mean? So today, the, the big question that we're going to be tackling is this. What does love require of me? What does love require of me? And I think that in each area of our life, in each season, Love requires something a little bit different. And and you already know this to be true. I mean, just thinking about your relationships. In the dating season, what love requires is this like this proof of love. We we do these over-the-top things to prove how much we love each other. I will climb this mountain to prove to you how much I love you. Like we just do all of these things. We push ourselves out of our comfort zones. We connect in ways that we wouldn't normally. We're more transparent and more vulnerable than we normally are because we're trying to prove our love for one another. Well, then there's the early season of marriage. And in that season, everything is about communication. It's about quality time. It's about compromise. And all of a sudden, we discover the reality that there's toilet seat etiquette And there's a certain way that the bed is made and there's a certain number of pillows that are supposed to be on there. And and guys start to realize that there's a huge difference between a mom and a wife. There, There are clear lines that are drawn in the sand. And for each of us in this relationship, it's it's compromise and it's quality times and it's it's not understanding how this person I love so much can be so incredibly messy. How is it possible? They were an incredible human being. And then now we're, we're living in a house together and all of a sudden they squeeze the toothpaste from the middle. They do weird stuff in the bathrooms. Like what, what is going on here, right? That's the, that early days of marriage. And then you move into what I call the worn in love. 
the worn in love. You've been together for a few years. You're you're starting to hit, or or you're right at that like that seven year snooze, right? When you, you're having to convince yourself of like, no, I, I do still love this person. This is not the same person I married. This is not the same person on the wedding day. This is a completely different human being. And you're reminding yourself on a consistent basis, oh yeah, that's why I fell in love with you. I got it. And it's, it's all about fighting complacency. Love requires us to fight complacency and, and just let things get stale and stagnant. It might be the, the early days of, of popping out some babies and everyone's tired and no one knows what day it is. And it just, there's a lot that's happening. And then you move into a season that I would consider the seasoned vets. And Lauren and I, were, we're a couple of days away from making 14 years. So we're, we're right on the cusp of hitting this the seasoned vets, those of you who've been married for 15 years to 25 years, like you've, you've put in the time. And in this season, it's marked by the ability or the inability to actually still listen to the other person. Like, do you actually hear them? This is a season in love where there's a lot of assumptions you, you kind of assume what they, what they want, you assume what they, they feel, you assume what they need and what they require, and you don't actually communicate it, and more times than not, you're wrong. But it's, it's one of those seasons that's filled with lots of hinting and lots of heavy sighs. You know what would be nice? You know, it sounds nice and you're trying to be gentle about it so you don't choke anybody. But it's filled with this like tension of not actually communicating things, but just making assumptions. And then there's those of you who are the heroes. You've made it past that 25 year mark. You've raised kids. They're moving out of the house. You're empty nesters. And in this phase, I would call it the reacquainted lovers. You're the reacquainted lovers. It's in this season that the wife looks at the husband and she goes, who are you again? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You look familiar. You're Bradley's dad, right? It's like, honey, yes, I am Bradley's dad, but I'm still your husband. Did you forget? Right? Because there's, you've been through the battlefield of raising kids and Sometimes you get to that season, you wake up and you look at each other and the kids are gone and it's just the two of you again. And you're thinking, man, who are you? I don't I don't know this person anymore. We've been in this season where we've only thought about the kids and we haven't thought about each other. And love requires something different. And so in each season that we face. Love is vital. Love is, is foundational. Love is this important element of everything in our lives. But what does true love look like in this season? What is loving my family and loving my coworkers and loving the, the people that are in my life, that the people God has gifted me to influence, what does it look like to love them well? What does love require of me in this season? And so today we're going to take a look at a crazy, crazy story about a prophet named Hosea. And Hosea is one of the minor prophets that you, you maybe haven't read his, his book of the Bible. It's one of those that's kind of 
somewhere in the middle and it just kind of gets skipped over and no one really talks about it a lot. And as you hear the story, you'll see why a lot of people kind of gloss over it and say, I don't know if we really want to talk about that one because it is a crazy story. And I'll try to give you the Instagram story version of it. We'll, we'll hit the highlights and see what love requires of us in each season of our life. So let's jump in. Hosea chapter one, verse two. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, go and marry a prostitute. I just want that to sit there with you for a second. Just marinate. So that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. Okay, got it, got it, Lord. I'm understanding why we skip this one a lot of times. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. So Hosea married Gomer and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm Hosea and the Lord, as he begins to speak to me, says, hey, son, I would like for you to go and marry a prostitute. I, I think my response would be, um, God, is Jesus like practicing his water into wine trick again and, and you drank too much? Like, what are you talking about? Go and marry who? To do what? To make a point that Israel is prostituting itself out against you and, and cheating on you and is unfaithful to can't we just tell them, like, give them the illustration? You really want me to go and marry a prostitute? Now, like, listen, could you imagine the priests that are around Hosea? And they're like, uh, Hosea, where are, you, where are you going? Um, I'm just running to the club. You, I'm sorry, what? You, you're running. Where? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go to the club. The Lord uh, told me that he would like for me to marry a, a prostitute. Did he now? Hosea, did he now? The Lord all of a sudden just wants you to go marry a prostitute. Like, just, I like to put myself in the story, right? I, I like to get the full picture of the scenario. There's got to be people in his life going, Hosea, you're tripping. I don't know what, that God would never tell you that, but God did because God was about to teach a lesson that was so visually powerful that the people of Israel had no other response. They could not ignore it. So Hosea obeys and he marries Gomer and he marries her and, and they have three kids and, and all the while she's still cheating on him. All the while she's still in a life of prostitution. And in the midst of that, God is speaking and he's saying, hey, hey, Israel, you see what Gomer is doing? You see what is happening in this relationship? That's what you're doing to me. That's what you're doing to me. But, but one of my favorite parts in this story is in chapter two, where God reveals this incredible truth about how he pursues us. And it's this in Hosea 2, 5. It says this, their mother is, sh is a shameless prostitute and became pregnant in a shameful way. And she said, I'll run after other lovers and sell myself to them for food and water, for clothing of wool and linen and for olive oil and drinks. For this reason, I will... This is God saying, for this reason, I will fence her in with thorn bushes. I will block her path with a wall to make her lose her way. When she runs after her lovers, she won't be able to catch them. She will search for them, but not find them. She will think, 
well, I might as well return to my husband, for I was better off with him than I am now. Verse 8, she doesn't realize it was I who gave her everything she has. There's, there's so much here. There's so much here, but I don't have time to unpack it in this message with you. But what I need you to see is that you and I are like Gomer. We're, we're running and chasing after lovers, trying to fill a hole that only God can fill. And there, there's some of you that you're running away from what God is trying to do in your life and what he wants to do in your life. And he's been pursuing you and it feels like you just keep hitting, hitting obstacles and there's, there's thorns on the way that are, are grabbing your clothes. And, and it just feels like there's so much effort and it's God saying, yeah, I put those in your path because I need you to see that it was me all along who has provided what you need. But we miss it. We miss out on what God is trying to do in our life because we're chasing and pursuing other lovers in effort to fill the holes that were only meant to be filled by God. It's such an important truth for us to understand about how God pursues us. So Gomer is doing her thing. She's out in the streets and Hosea is left at home with the kids. And, and Hosea 3, 1, and then the Lord said to me, go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. So I bought her back. This is Hosea speaking. So I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley in a measure of wine. I, I want you to see this. God doesn't tell Hosea to go back and simply just take her back. Just bring her back home. Hey, Hosea, I, I want you to forgive her. No, 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 no. God says, go and love your wife again. I know what she's doing. I know how she's breaking your heart. But go and love again, for this is what I have done for Israel. It's this beautiful picture of God's love for us. And that's the kind of love that God is calling us to. A love that's, that is more than just what we can get out of it. A love that is focused on more than just our return on investment. I need you to see this. There may not be a return on investment, but this kind of love connects you with God. The love that is focused on just loving people, that it's not about yourself, it's not about what you get out of it, it's not about how it makes you feel, but it's loving people with the love that God has loved you with, connects you with God in such a deep and powerful way, but it requires us to, to stop focusing on the return on investment, stop focusing on what we can get out of it. And that's the big question. Like, can you love without getting something out of it? Like, think about God. Think about God's love for us. What is his return on investment on us? Heartbreak? Disappointment? Continual aggravation? Like, we just do so many dumb things to just hurt our relationship with God. And yet here he is pursuing the saying that he's He's guarding our path. He's blocking our path. He's, he's leading us back to him even when we're running away from him. And so for you and I, we have to reevaluate some of our relationships. We have to reevaluate some of the places that we go and the places that we work, reevaluate some of our perspective on life. I, I wonder what would happen in your life if, if you, instead of asking what you could get out of your marriage, you would say something like this, 
If I love my wife the way that God loves me, I would be honest and I would be transparent with her. If I loved my boss the way that God loves me, I would give my best at work even though I know I won't get the promotion. If I loved my friends the way that God loves me, I wouldn't give up on them just because they believe different than I do, or they vote different than I do, or they have a belief system or a lifestyle that's different than I would ever want for them to have. But because God loves me, I will love them like that. What, what, what would change in your life? What would change in your life if, if, if I love, if you loved, because I'm not getting myself in trouble, if you loved your mother-in-law the way that God loves you, I'm going to leave it alone, right? But in the end, it's not about the ROI in love. It's about our ability to take the love that we've received and give it to those that God has placed in our lives. So we're still left with the question, though. What does love require of me? Okay, it's not about the ROI. It's not about what I can get out of it. It's not about just me when it comes to love. But how do I love the way that God loves me? How do I put that into action? How do I love without focusing on the ROI? And I think we go back to one of the most familiar passages of Scripture. The Apostle Paul writes his famous chapter of love in 1 Corinthians 13. But I think as we look at it, we're going to see some ways that we can actually meet the requirements of love. So let's read it together. I know it's familiar for you. We're going to read it in the Passion Translation just to kind of mix it up. And I love how it says some different uh, parts of this verse. Verse 4, love is large and incredibly patient. Love is gentle and consistently kind to all. It refuses to be jealous when blessings come to someone else. Love does not brag about one's achievements nor inflate its own importance. Love does not traffic and shame and disrespect, nor selfishly seek its own honor. Love is not easily irritated or quick to take offense. Love joyfully celebrates honesty and finds no delight in what is wrong. Love is a safe place of shelter, for it never stops believing the best for others. Love never takes failure as defeat, for it never gives This is so important. This is so incredibly valuable to us. And so we're going to look at four things that love requires of us. And the first thing is this. Love requires humility. Love requires humility. Love is large, incredibly patient, gentle, and consistently kind, refuses to be jealous when blessing comes to others, does not brag about one's achievement, nor inflate its own importance. Listen to me. Humility is the ability to have a quiet confidence that God is in control. A quiet confidence that God is in control. And and because God is in control, there's no need for you to feel like you have to come to your own defense and you have to project how how great you are or, or help people see what you bring to the table. There's a quiet confidence that God is the one who's in control. God is, God is the one who will elevate you. He promises us, hey, hey, those who humble themselves, I will bring them up at the right time. 
There's been so many times in my life where I've been presented with an opportunity to try to defend myself or, or try to, to make sure that no one thinks the wrong thing or make sure that there's no misunderstanding or misperception and, and just try to defend my own name. But I, I understand that God's got it. Like, I'm doing the best that I can and leading with humility and leading with integrity. And, and there are moments where it, it doesn't always make a ton of sense. And there's things that people may have questions about. But if we run around trying to prove that we are people of integrity, run around trying to prove and, and answer every question, we're not trusting God with this quiet confidence that he's got it. In the end, I'll end up just messing it up. I'll say too many words and I'll say something and it and it doesn't end up helping, so I have to trust that God is my advocate. God is going for me. But our culture, our culture demands that we prove and declare our rightness. But I need you to see this. Don't confuse rightness with righteousness. Don't confuse rightness with righteousness. They are totally opposite things. And there's a whole lot of Jesus followers right now that are waving the banner of their rightness and they're pretending and mistakenly calling it righteousness. But here's the deal. We weren't called to be right. We were called to be loving. God is the judge. God is the one who will defend his word. God is the one that we, we, we are connecting people with him. And I think a lot of times you and I are trying to play the role of the Holy Spirit. And God's like, yo, that, that's, that's not what I'm asking you to do. Well, God, it's just righteousness. No, it's not. It's just you being right. You're trying to prove your point. There are a lot of people right now that are hurting others because they're believing that they're trying to defend God's righteousness, but in reality, the only thing they're defending is their rightness. And if you wanna know how to, to discern the difference, ask yourself who's getting the glory. Ask who's getting the glory. Look at this, our rightness brings glory to us, while righteousness brings glory to him. Is what we're doing making God famous? Is what we're doing promoting and pushing and bringing clarity to his love and his mercy and his grace and his desire and his pursuit to be in right relationship with people? If it's not doing that, then the only thing we really care about is proving the other person wrong. And we're using the Bible to try to get away with it. Does it mean that there aren't things? There are things in the Bible. There are things that are clear that God stands on things. But all you got to do is watch Jesus's life. Look at how Jesus handled those situations. And we got a lot of people running around claiming to, de to defend the righteousness of God, all the while hurting and slapping people in the face and spitting on them and saying, hey, guess how right I am and how wrong you are. Do you really think that brings glory to God? I'm gonna leave it alone. Just gonna leave it alone. Point two, love requires forgiveness. Love requires forgiveness. The famous Christian theologian Oswald Chambers, he says it this way. 
Being born again means we must be willing to let go before we can grasp something else. And it's this picture of us hanging on for dear life. And the question that we have to ask is, what are we holding on to? What, what are we holding on to? And the deeper question that we see in the verse, whose shame and disrespect are you trafficking in? Whose shame and disrespect and, and pain and heartbreak, who, whose shame and disrespect are we, we peddling out to anyone who will listen and anyone who will carry it for us? What we have to understand when it comes to unforgiveness, we feel justified in holding their mistakes. But in reality, we're really only holding on to our pain. An effort to hold on to their mistakes, to hold it over them, to, to hold it out in front of us so no one can break our hearts again and no one can hurt us the same way that they have. An effort to, to protect ourselves, we're holding on to the pain, we're holding on to the mistake because they, we, we believe it's helping us. And I think God, and as we see Oswald Chambers, we have to be willing to let it go so we can grab hold of all that God has in our lives. You see, Hosea had every right to hold on to the pain. Hosea had every right. He's at home. He's watching his family being hurt. He's, he's, there's zero doubt that he's being made fun of in the streets as this prophet of God is married to a prostitute who's sleeping with people all over the city. Do you think that he was just walking around everybody's like, hey buddy, keep going? Of course not, people are ridiculing him. There's pain associated with what God is asking him to do and carry in that moment. But in the midst of that chaos, God called him not only to forgive, but he called him to love. Caught him to love. Now, now listen, I need you to hear me. What I, I am not saying that God is calling you to stay in, in abuse and to stay hidden in shame and stay stuck in pain in a relationship or a situation where you're continually being abused. And that's not what God is asking. God was, is trying to use the story as a, a picture of his redemptive love for Israel. God is not asking you to stay in an abusive relationship and just go, okay, well, I guess God's saying I need to love. No, that is not what I'm saying. The point that I'm, I'm making is that if you're unwilling to let go of unforgiveness, your hands won't be free to grab a hold of his unconditional love. We can't hold unforgiveness and God's love in the same hands. It does not work. We have to let it go, allow God to bring healing and restoration so that we can fully experience the totality of his love. Love requires forgiveness. Third thing that love requires, love requires patience. Love requires patience. It's not easily irritated, not quick to take offense joyfully celebrates honesty and finds no delight in, wrong, in what is wrong. Other versions say in wrong doing. Now I have to be transparent with you. I was transparent with you last week. I got to be transparent with you again. 
It's just like I, I, my counseling session, just me and you, nobody else is watching, right? I may be a nice person. I may be approachable. I genuinely love people, but I am not a kind nor patient driver. I have no tolerance. I have no stamina to handle the foolishness on the freeway. I just, I am, I get behind the wheel of the car and I turn into a different person. It's not good. Me and God are working on it. I understand this is not something I should be. I'm not holding on to it. I'm trying to get better. But in my home, I am known, I am known to literally laugh at someone who does something stupid in traffic and they end up being absolutely wrong. Like, I'm getting fired up. Don't tailgate me when there's a car in front of me that I can't get past. And then you want to swerve around to the middle lane thinking that you're going to get all past everybody. If I could get around them, don't you think I would do that? I am on their butt as well. So my favorite thing is when you're riding and tailgating me and then all of a sudden you whip over to that middle lane and then you get stuck in, in traffic. I literally will laugh in your face. It's not good. God needs to help me with this. This is not a good thing. I'm just telling you, I'm working on it. We're working through this together. I am not a patient driver. There's a Swahili proverb that I read once that says patience attracts happiness. It brings near that which is far. And listen, I, I, I understand some of you are going, that's great, Mr. Swahili shaman. But if my husband doesn't put the dishes that are dirty in the dishwasher after I've told him 400 times, somebody's going to get hurt today. My patience is gone. What do you want me to do with that? How do I have patience in that scenario, Pastor Danny, James chapter 1, 19. Take this to heart. Be quick to listen, slow to speak. And be slow to become angry, for human anger is never a legitimate tool to promote God's righteous purpose. Somebody needs to hear that today on Facebook. Anger is never a legitimate tool to promote God's righteous purpose. Verse 21, instead, with a sensitive spirit, we absorb God's word, which has been implanted within our nature, that the word of life has power to continually deliver us. Anger and impatience are never legitimate tools to promote God's purposes in our world, much less in our life. So we hit these, these places where we just struggle with patience. We struggle with, with people continuing to make the same mistakes over and over again and doing the same things over and over again. And we, we struggle to know how to handle it. Some of the best advice that I ever received is this. Lower your expectations of others and be surprised when they exceed them. It sounds so funny. It, it sounds like, okay, so the answer is don't expect my husband to put the dishes into the dishwasher. Got it, Danny. If I, if I couldn't figure that one out on my own, no, 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 no. Listen, there, there are expectations in our lives. There, there are uncommunicated expectations that we're placing over people that are feeding our impatience. 
They're feeding our unforgiveness and they're feeding our pride. So what does he say that we should do? We should allow God's word to penetrate our hearts and guide us. I love how it says that. With sensitive spirit, we absorb God's word that has the power to continually deliver us. When your impatience is rising, find yourself in the word of God and absorb it in and allow God's grace to help you to continue to deliver you from that situation. The last thing is this. Love requires hope. Love requires hope. I I love how the verse says it this way in this translation. Love is a safe place of shelter for it never stops believing the best for others. Love never takes failure as defeat for it never gives up. Hope gives us three powerful nevers. Never stop believing the best in others. I know you want to give up all hope for humanity, but we can't. We're not allowed to. If God can't give up hope on us, then we can't give up hope on the world. We have to hold on to hope. Never stop believing the best in others. Never take failures for defeat. I read a book that said, great leaders never fail. They just have really expensive education. They just learn. You learn from your mistakes. You learn from what's happening in your life. If you learn from it and you get back up and you try again and you do better, then you didn't fail. The last thing is that love never gives up. We gotta hold on to these things. We gotta hold on to hope. Why? Because failure doesn't have to be the end. It can lead to a new beginning. As I close with those words, it reminds me of how God finishes up speaking to Israel in chapter 14 of Hosea. As the story is coming to an end, and God God says this, then I will heal you of your faithlessness My love will know no bounds, for my anger will be gone forever. I will be to Israel like a refreshing dew from heaven. Israel will blossom like the lily. It will send roots deep into the soil like the cedars in Lebanon. I love verse 7. And my people will again live under my shade. See, in God's covering, there's faithfulness. There's boundless love. There's a refreshing for our soul. And there's a depth to life that's unrivaled. We're in the shadow of the most high God. We're promised these things in our relationship with him. But here's the beauty. When we're connected to God in that way, we're able to provide those same experiences for the people that we come in contact with every single day. Imagine what your relationships would look like if you created this safe place of shelter where you never stop believing the best. You never 
counted failure as the end and you never gave up, how much deeper and richer and refreshing would your relationships be if we loved like that? Love requires humility and forgiveness, patience, most of all, hope. Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you for what might be one of the craziest stories in all of the Bible, that it reminds us of the depths and the, the lengths that you would go to to pursue us. God, I pray today that as we, we land the plane, would you just solidify in our heart what, what requirement of love we need to elevate in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our relationships God, I pray for that person who's struggling with their job. It feels like it's so unfulfilling and overwhelming. God, would you help them to take on that mentality that if, if I love how you have loved me, then I would give my best. I would do my best. I would find my purpose, even if it isn't in the, the actual job itself, but purpose in the relationships that you give me access to. God, would you just help people discover what love requires of them in this season of their life. That you would grow their humility, that you would give them strength to forgive, that you would increase their patience, and that God, in spite of all that we're facing, that you would give them a hope that lasts. We pray all of this in your strong and mighty name, Jesus. Amen.